0: Many of you are familiar with Dr. Carson's colleague, Doug Moo. He will be here with us next year, and he will be speaking on the subject, the relation of the Old and New Testaments. And I'm very much looking forward to that. And I hope you'll be here with us April nineteen through twenty two next year. And also, since Dr. Carson is frustrated about having a topical assignment rather than an expositional one, we've we've already begun talking to him about having him back. It won't be next year, but I hope the year after that, so that I have appreciated his preaching and his teaching. His preaching at church Sunday was was, uh, immensely helpful, as was Dr. Johnson's. One thing I I love about his preaching, and this is one of the highest compliments you can give a preacher, and I mean it that way, is that when he's done preaching, God is not in a pantheon. God is God. And you, you have to love hearing that. and uh, So he'll be back with us again, I hope.
1: Now what we shall do for the next while uh, is this. I shall try to respond now to some of these uh, new perspectives and then we shall open up the floor mic to anyone um, who would like to raise a question. I'm afraid we're going to ask you, this is not my idea, but somebody's idea, who's important. Um, We're going to ask you to use the microphone so that you will be recorded for posterity and uh, then we shall proceed um, with question and answer and discussion until about uh, 12.20 or so to give everyone a time to powder their nose uh, before the lunch at 12.30. Now let me repeat then what I said um, Uh, briefly uh, this morning. It would be very nice if um, every movement that came along were entirely from the throne of God or entirely from the pit. It would simplify a lot of our decisions. There is another side to all of that and it is found in the pages of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul insists that some of these things must come in a fallen world. They must. But they serve not only to demonstrate who really does have the grace of God, they serve also to help us to think things through at a deeper level. That doesn't mean that they're all good. It means that God in his mercy uses bad things sometimes for a good end. And historically, of course, that has often happened. You get far sharper thinking about the deity of Christ this side of the Arian controversy than the other side of it. And one of the things that has happened, for example, because of the Reformation, is some sharper thinking about some things, which you can find in the Fathers. But but once certain things are are denied, then sometimes there is a certain acuity that's gained in how to articulate them and defend them. It is in that sense that Warfield used to argue, God has yet more light to break from his most holy word. It's not, of course, that... uh, there there is another level of meaning or something like that. The idea, rather, is that because of our finiteness and our folly and our sinfulness and our blindness and so on, we don't even raise certain kinds of questions. We don't address things the right way. And sometimes the Lord in His mercy uses even bad movements to force us to rethink some things that help us sharpen up in areas where we might otherwise be a little too dull. So I would want to argue that some of these uh, developments have helped us sharpen up. They're not entirely bad. Nevertheless, a fair bit of what I'm going to say in the next 45 minutes or so is pretty negative. I beg of you to remember all the positive things I've said about uh, Tom Wright and others in the previous hour uh, before we go down this, this road. Now let me review a little bit then Uh, some of the steps that have been taken and make some comments on them, and then we'll turn to certain passages of Scripture in due course. What shall we make of covenantal gnomism? That is, the view that first century Judaism, in its many different forms, can all be embraced under one rubric in which people enter by grace and stay in by works. The first thing to be said, I think, is that it is horribly reductionistic. Second Temple Judaism is an extraordinarily diverse movement. Martin McNamara, who's a Catholic expert on the Targums, goes so far as to say that covenantal gnomism not only can't be extended over all the branches of Second Temple Judaism, but further, that um, it doesn't fit any of them. That is, you've tried to get a kind of slush factor to describe it all and have ended up with a category that's so fuzzy it doesn't quite fit anywhere. Let me push that just a little farther. In um, Sanders' first book in this area that I drew attention to this morning, 1979, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, He mentioned Josephus only six times and then he talked about Josephus in a later publication uh, so that he tried to fit Josephus under this umbrella as well, including Josephus' many references to grace. But I've read Josephus from cover to cover and I made a point of looking up all the references to grace again in Josephus. Uh, He alludes to grace many times and he talks about grace with um, some detail about a dozen times. I have forgotten the exact number now, maybe 15. In about two-thirds of those instances, he actually raises the question, put in various ways, to whom then does God give this grace? To those who deserve it, or to those who do not deserve it? Answer? Every time. To those who deserve it, otherwise God would be unjust. That's Josephus, unambiguously. To put that into a Pauline framework and label the two covenantal gnomism, whatever else it is or isn't, is terribly obscure. It is obfuscating. It doesn't recognize transparent differences. Last night we looked together at Romans 3 and the beginning of 4. Where is boasting? It is excluded. If it is of grace, then it is no more of works. It's for the undeserving, Jew and Gentile, who have all been condemned by 320. Do you see? It is another world. It is a different frame of reference. Nevertheless, the element of truth in what E.P. Sanders says is that a great number of Protestant, including Reformed, but especially German Lutheran scholars, have been guilty again and again and again of reading later sources back into the first century. Alfred Edersheim's famous The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah is doing that all the time. You can't trust any of it, unless you know the primary sources. It's as simple as that. It's it's orthodox, but the sources handling is just not trustworthy. And um, there is, he is right to say, Sanders is right to say, that there is no evidence before late fourth century of a vision of um, merit theology that is merely a question of tipping the scale. So many brownie points, so many bad points, and which way it tips at the end, well, who knows? Do 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 you see? You can't find that before the fourth century, and moreover, there are some elements of Jewish heritage, not least, for example, some of the writings at Qumran, one of the documents called 1QH, one q 1Q um, which which uh, are extraordinarily Old Testament in their general configuration of uh, of, of God's sovereignty and grace and uh, uh, His his, uh, his His transparent uh, forbearance and so forth. On the other hand, there are also documents like 4th Ezra and and books like that that are chock block with with merit theology of one sort or another. Those sorts of distinctions are all passed over with E.P. Sanders, I'm afraid. And so you just cannot trust his analysis of Second Temple Judaism. He's partly right. He is getting rid of some of the extremes that um, have come to us out of um, especially Lutheran scholarship. Moreover, he is right to say that some of us have read Galatians and Romans almost entirely in the framework of the debates that were formed at the time of the Magisterial Reformation. I'll come back to that point. He is partly right. But having said that, he has swung the pendulum so far the other way that um, his alternative is even worse than what he's trying to combat. Moreover, there are other ways at this. As in 1981, I published a small book trying to show... Uh, that um, that al- although we don't have a lot of sources, right, for first century AD, we have earlier sources, we have later sources, what you can do is kind of uh, create a trajectory, show what it looks like across th- th- three or four centuries, and, and where does uh, first century Judaism fit on that line? So although it is wrong, you see, to fit fifth century AD Babylonian Talmud sources back into the first century, nevertheless you can create something of a trajectory, and along that trajectory, as far as I can see, you're about halfway. In other words, merit theology is certainly on the rise. Moreover, many of these sources that people look at are written by the the ancient equivalent of theologians, experts, more or less sophisticated people. But you and I both know that at the street level there's almost always more merit theology that is actually worked on in practice than in the more sophisticated levels. Um, Officially, the the, the doctrine of the Church of England is the 39 articles and the ordinal and so forth. Uh, Wonderful definitions of grace On the other hand, in your average Anglican church in many parts of the world, your average Episcopalian church almost everywhere in this country with only very few exceptions, merit theology of one sort or another triumphs. You you can't simply go to the the, um, educated, most sophisticated sources um, and and, and assess a whole movement from that perspective when um, a man like Paul is working at the street level, do do, do you see? Now that's a much harder thing to get at um, because we don't have ready access to the street level. Uh, they haven't left a whole lot of literary traces, but you have to think through those issues at least. There's a whole school of historiography in France called the Annal School of Historiography, which keeps trying to find ways of finding out what the person on the street thought, as opposed to what the great movements think. Uh, For example, in 200 years, if the Lord hasn't returned, people will go back and look at uh, who wrote what in the 20th century, and Carl Henry will emerge as a a giant figure who wrote 40 books and so forth. Uh, Nobody will mention Hal Lindsey. But at the the street level in this century, let me suggest quite frankly, that Hal Lindsey's had a lot more influence than Carl Henry. Do, 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 do you see? So for the pastor working in certain parts of the country in certain decades in this, in this, uh, in this um, century, it's far more important to come to grips with what Hal Lindsey says than it is to come to grips with what uh, Carl Henry says. Those are the realities, do you see? So, so this um, reconfiguration of everything has been just far, far, far too simplistic. Uh, second, now this is jumping now from E.P. Sanders to uh, Tom Wright in particular. With respect to his understanding of the exile in Second Temple Judaism, again he's partly right and in my judgment profoundly wrong on two scores. Where he's right is that there are some sources in Second Temple Judaism that somehow theologize their way to the conclusion that the exile really isn't over. In fact, I I referred to some of them in my commentary on Matthew, in the famous passage in Matthew 2, on Rachel weeping for her children. I don't think you can understand that Old Testament quote without understanding it within the framework of an exile that's still continuing. I argued it back then. It's not not a new idea. It's been around for a long time. On the other hand, there are some of us now that are putting together a project, a two volume project to tackle this uh, whole business Um, It it will be published by Tubingen, J.C.B. Moore, and eventually get here with, I don't know, Erdmans or Hendrickson or something. The first volume is 600 pages on Second Temple Judaism, and the second volume is 600 pages on Paul. And in the first volume on Second Temple Judaism, we have one person or another looking at each of the various corpora of of, uh, Second Temple Judaism. And um, I have one of my graduate students now working through all of that literature to find out everything that can be found about the exile. And already we have a file about this thick. He's been on it a couple of months now. And um, what you discover in Second Temple Judaism literature, which is what you'd expect if you stop to think about it, um, is extraordinary diversity. There's no simple plan. Uh, I, I worry about reductionism. Uh, Tom Wright, in in a sense, is a better systematician than he is an exegete. He's got an idea which has some truth to it, and then he systematized it. But you can find many Jewish references to the exile finishing when the exile finished. At the historical plane. it did finish. People did go back. And and you you must make sense not only of the promises of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you must also make sense of, 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 of Haggai and Zechariah and so forth as well. And at a certain level, they did go back, they did rebuild the temple, and some Jews acknowledge that. Then the continuity of the problem, in which there are so many Jews that haven't gone back, generates also certain theologizing to the effect that the, the exile isn't right over yet, which is the kind of literature that Tom has lopped into, do you see? But then, in addition, there is, I don't know what else to call it, a kind of Jewish typology that comes from this literature. If God has benefited His people by bringing many back to the land at the end of the exile, what will the final restoration be? So that you get a kind of theology, typology that's building out of the exile. Now... Tom latches onto all of those passages, too, but he doesn't handle them fairly. In those passages, it seems to me that the, the issue is not that the exile is continued, but that the return from exile becomes a type of the final restoration, which is a different way of looking at things, do you, do you see, and brings up all kinds of, of different issues. And those subtleties, it seems to me, are simply not logged into at all. Number three, let me say something now about um, boundary markers and the like. I've debated which way to uh, go about tackling this. Let me offer a theoretical model. It's merely theoretical, but then after the fact, I think you'll see why I have given it. And I think I could sustain it from various passages in the New Testament. But without taking the time to go through all the passages inductively, let me offer you a theoretical model. Picture the early church, the earliest early church, just after Pentecost. Its only members are Jews. Some are... um, are Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jews, and some are Hellenistic Jews from abroad. There may be the odd proselyte in there, but they're all Jews. By the time you get to the end of the New Testament, there are some churches that are either dominantly or exclusively Gentile. Along the line, just by reading the book of Acts, and then tracing out Paul's letters in their chronological sequence, you can see how the church Grows in its theological understanding. It doesn't have it all on the day of Pentecost After all Jesus himself said in the farewell discourse that they were not able to bear it all yet But when the Holy Spirit came he would teach them all things Which of course does not mean all things without exception They didn't know all about the sex life of sea turtles and uh, nuclear physics but, But it means all things with respect to the gospel all things with respect to the coming of Christ It would be filled out and you can watch their understanding growing Now within that framework, you can peg certain positions along the line. This is the schematic model that is merely a model. On the one hand, way off on this side, doesn't matter which side, but we'll say this side. You have devout conservative Jews who think that you will be accepted before God by being obedient to the law. Now they're not Christians, that's what they think. Then a little farther along, you have some people who are um, not Christians, who have a lot of emotional attachment to uh, the law and to observance, but um, they're not Pharisees, they're, they're, they're street people, they're uh, Amharets, they're, they're the people of the land without this kind of theological commitment. Then we'll, we'll cross over the line, there could be a couple more pegs in there. And now you come to people who who do accept that Jesus is the Messiah. They they have come to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. And uh, they see him as their Messiah. They're all Jews. And he's the Jewish Messiah. And um, and they have discovered that the early church in the earliest uh, period uh, still worshipped in the temple. Now, um, Uh, They they still went up to the temple for the high feasts. Uh, For many of them, still not thought through. um, uh, Jesus has added something to them, but it hasn't taken anything away from them. They're still Jews in their their orientation and thinking. And uh, they they haven't worked out the details yet, but uh, Yom Kippur is still important. But of course, Jesus is their Messiah, and they want to accept him as Lord. Are they Christians? Oh, we'll worry about that in a moment. Now, the next peg along. <laughs> uh, now, you come to people who, um, they accept Jesus as the Messiah, and they have come to understand that um, it is not necessary any longer to obey uh, all of the ritual sacrificial structure of things, they don't have to go to uh, Yom Kippur, it, it, it's its not Passover that in any sense saves them, uh, the morning and the evening sacrifice, uh, it, it, so, somehow point to Jesus, but, but Jesus is himself the means by which human beings are reconciled before God. Nevertheless, because this is their culture, this is their heritage, this is their family, they still observe it all. they They don't observe it in the sense of um, of of thinking that their salvation depends on on the blood that is offered by the high priest at Yom Kippur, but but still, they're observant Jews. Are they Christians? Now you move along a bit. There are others now who who, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and... um, and for tradition's sake, because of the pressures upon them, when they're in Jerusalem, they, they go along with it. But, but when they're on business trips and they're off in Rome, they may or may not go along with it. I mean, no sweat. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died for their sins. He's the fulfillment of the past. But the past is now a dead issue for them. They, 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 they no longer feel that, uh, that, that they must uh, observe all of the law, however they configure it. Now, in that group, there may also be some proselytes, some Gentiles who did observe and now no longer observe. Or there may be some proselytes in one group back who observe and continue to observe, but still also accept that Jesus is the Messiah. Now you get one group on. Now you've got God-fearers who have got converted. And they believe a lot of this Jewish material, but they never did observe at all. They never had been circumcised. But they've now come to accept Jesus as Messiah. And now you have some people who are further out at all. They're not god They they've been converted off the streets of paganism some of those who got converted, for example, in, in, in Lystra, or some of those who got converted under Paul's ministry in Athens. they they never heard the, of Moses, of the Bible. They're not God-fearers. They're not proselytes. But they've now come to accept that Jesus really is the Messiah. There is but one God. Jesus Christ has manifested that God to us. He has reconciled us to that God by His substitutionary death on the cross. And, 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 and that's the framework in which they think. But they never did observe Yom Kippur. Then you move to someone, I don't know which side to put him on, this side, that side, someone like Paul. Who can say, uh, we'll look at the passage in a few moments, to the Jew, I became a Jew. Uh, to those without the law, I became like one without the law. I mean, in one sense, they're more flexible than these pagans, and they're certainly more flexible than these Jews. In fact, he is in what is sometimes defined as a tertium quid, a third position. In this respect, he's not like a, Jewish believer has to flex to become a Gentile, nor is he a Gentile, pure and simple. He's a Christian. And he's got to flex either way. He's got to flex to serve this group. He's got to flex to serve that group. And then a little farther out, you you, you, you get some people who um, sing, free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus has bled and there is remission. But it's the first line that is especially important. Free from the law, O happy condition. And, and, and that... Um, that, that uh, verges toward a kind of antinomianism that is, is, is a bit dicey. It's, it's, it's skirting so far out that, um, that, that they almost say, let us do evil that good may come. And Paul can actually be charged with that. But when he is, he says, those who say such things, their damnation is just. Now, what I'm trying to say by painting this kind of picture is, is to show that in almost any generation, you don't simply have, um, on any complex issue, two positions. There's a scale. I, I think most of those people I could find in the pages of the New Testament, I'll show you where they are, I could attach names to them. Did, did, did you see? And it's important to see that. Moreover, some of these positions are. Transient positions as the progress of redemption leads to fuller explication of what the gospel really means, what it really says. Do you you see the entailments of it? So when you come to someone like uh, James D.G. Dunn, who speaks in terms of boundary markers, who is convinced that the parting of the ways has to do primarily with nationalism, and not much with respect to legalism. What troubles me about the analysis, again, is the sheer reductionism of it. Once again, it's not entirely wrong. The kinds of issues that would clearly trigger debate are precisely the public ones. And the public ones include, inevitably, kosher habits, eating, it's why, it's one of the reasons why, the, um, the Jerusalem Council included some material about food. We'll come to one of the passages in Galatians in due course. It's why circumcision becomes such an important debate in um, Galatians. It, 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 done is not entirely wrong. Moreover, it does have to be said that some branches of reform thought have misunderstood some parts of Galatians, in my judgment. Galatians 3, in a great deal of reformed thought, has often been misunderstood in a fairly static sense. That is to say, Galatians 3 teaches that in the individual's life, you must have law before you have grace. Now, lest you think that I'm about to become heretical. I come back to that conclusion myself, but not out of Galatians 3. At least, not directly. I think that's a huge mistake. It misunderstands Galatians 3. We'll come to it in due course. The argument, however, runs like this. The law is a paedagogos to lead us to Christ. And in our experience, that's what we must have. Until you know you're lost, you won't cry to be saved. And and moreover, that's the whole vision of the Puritans. The Puritans, if you ask them what was in the Bible said, there are three things in the Bible. Law, grace, and illustrations of both. That that was a serious answer. I'm I'm not mocking them. That was a serious thought through answer. And when you get to uh, Wesley, here Jim Packer is right. Wesley's not an Arminian. He's an inconsistent Calvinist. Later, Arminians are Arminians, but he's not. He's an inconsistent Calvinist. So that when you read his, I think it's letter 113, I can't remember the number, where he's asked, uh, how do you preach the gospel in any place? He gives a classic Puritan answer. This is Wesley. He says, when I go into any place to preach the gospel, he says, I begin with a general declaration of the love of God. And then he says, I preach law. I preach law and I preach law and I preach law. To bring home to men their sin. And then he says, when some begin to weep in consternation, I preach more law. <laughs> That's Wesley. That's Wesley. It was right of the Puritans, of course. I preach more law. And then when many seem to be affected by the Spirit of God bringing guilt to their conscience and shame to their face, then I admix a little grace. But only, he says, when just about the whole congregation is in tears, does he preach grace pure and free, wide and large, probably a little larger than some of you might like. And then he says, quickly do I admix grace lest men should presume. Which is Puritan thinking, through and through. (laughs) Now, because that's our heritage, we have come to Galatians 3, and we have read this Pythagogos language, it seems to me, in a fairly static way. But when you read Galatians 3 at close length, then you discover that the issue that it is addressing is not quite ours. It has a bearing on ours, but it is not quite ours. And we have sometimes forced it to answer our questions a little prematurely. You see, to many conservative Jews in the first century, if you ask, how do you please God? The answer was, by obeying the law. How does Moses please God? By obeying the law. How does Abraham please God? By obeying the law. Hey, w- wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you say that Abraham pleased God by obeying the law? Yeah, I mean, he didn't have it yet. Well, y- y- we know that you please God by obeying the law, so he must have had it by special revelation. He must have. I mean, after all, doesn't it say that Abraham kept all my statutes? What are the statutes but the, the law of Moses? How does Enoch please God? Oh, by obeying the law. You mean he got special revelation too? Well, he must have because after all, you please God by obeying the law. There's lots of literature on that. Now, it's very important to understand that Paul has the same Bible as these conservative Jews. He can't look up Romans. Not in the early years. And so, he must respond to them out of their Bible, which he shares with them. What is intriguing then from our point of view is the hermeneutical difference, the interpretative difference, the controlling grid that makes him read the Old Testament differently. Now, there are a lot of factors that go in here, but one of them is this. He reads the Old Testament salvation historically. If you read the Old Testament and elevate Torah, to the level of hermeneutical grid, which is what his most conservative opponents were doing, then really they've got a kind of, we would call it, atemporal systematic theology hermeneutic to the Old Testament, in which, in fact, law is the control for all the exegesis. How does Abraham please God? By obeying the law. We know that. That's the control. What then does Paul do in Galatians 3? well, he does many things, but one of the things that he does is lay out the storyline sequentially. The point there is that Abraham believed God that was credited to him for righteousness before there was any law, which sooner or later forces him to ask the question, well, If the promise to Abraham, if if the covenant with Abraham promises ultimately that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, why then even have the law? So then he gives a reason for that. The reason the law was added was, no, he doesn't give all the reasons. You have to read farther than Galatians 3 to get all the reasons, but one of the reasons is to to multiply sin, to make sin a transgression, to compound sin, to make sin black, to make it really terrible, to to make it vile, to make it odious. Now, within this kind of framework, then, when he says that the law was our paedagogos to to lead us to Christ, he is not dealing at the individual level. He's dealing at the salvation historical level. Along the sweep of redemptive history, the law was our paedagogos to to lead us to Christ. This was part of God's big plan to bring us up to the moment of fulfillment, chapter 4, when in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Now, of course... Having said that, it is still important to recognize that the reason why God did send along the law as a paedagogos to drive the human race toward Christ, Jews first, but then in principle all of us from every race and tribe and tongue and nation. The reason why he did it is precisely to, to drive deep into human consciousness the sheer ugliness of sin. Yes, that's why he did it. And because that's why he did it, it is important in our pastoral experience likewise today to make people see their need before they, you show them their relief. That, that is also true. So I do come back to something close to the Puritan position by another route. But not by the direct route of a static reading of Galatians 3. By a salvation historical reading of Galatians 3. Now if we were brought up merely on the static reading of Galatians 3 and then you suddenly come across Jimmy Dunn's commentary and you discover how utterly convincing he is in Galatians 3 reading along a sort of salvation historical plan with all of those befores and afters and 430 years later and this could not annul that because the other was given first and so on. All these time markers that really are not properly handled in any static reading of Galatians 3 you say, my word, this chap right. And what you want to say is, well, yes, he's right on the salvation historical reading at a certain level, but he's wrong by seeing that all the issues are boundary markers. That's a little more complex again. For to be circumcised in the first century when you were a Gentile not only meant that you were becoming a Jew in some merely observant sense, but that you were pledging yourself to the law of Moses. Moreover, it is not long before this book likewise ties in these huge questions to overt sin in the broadest sense. The works of the flesh are not merely not observing kosher food. Uh Uh-uh. The works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In this sense, then, what the gospel concerns is how to save us, the people of God, from sin and its consequences. Underlying the storyline of a covenant people, and who is the covenant people. Underlying that story is the bigger story that starts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I had a two-hour breakfast with Tom Wright, in fact, about um, three or four years ago, and that was the question that I raised to him. I said, I, you know, you obviously haven't finished your series yet, but l- let me tell you what makes me nervous. Your understanding of um, justification, has God declaring certain people to be in the covenant? Now, at least it's declarative. It's a declarative act. He's not adopting an infusion view. It's a declarative act. God faithfully declares certain people to be in the covenant. But what troubles me about this is that the whole discussion is locked into the locus of the covenant community without taking into account that underlying the question of who is in the covenant community is the bigger question of why you need a covenant community the storyline is too short it's like liberation theologians in Latin America they all start with the Exodus we all need to be liberated here we're starting with the law all over again we all need to be in the covenant community then those Jews landed up in exile. Now God's releasing them and, and, and the real locus of the people of God is in Jesus. And everybody who's in Jesus experiences the restoration that uh, of, of, of the, the was promised after the end of the exile. So it's important to be declared amongst the people of God in Jesus after the exile because of Jesus' triumph. Yes, but why did he die? Why do you need a covenant community? Where's the big storyline? sin? Which is why on this weekend, when I had an opportunity to preach in Fred Zaspel's church, I preached on Genesis 3 in the fall. In my mind, it was tied into this topic, even though it's a day before the official conference. Unless you see what the problem is, you can't see what the solution is. Do you see? There's a bigger story line. And in this connection, then, I would want to argue that Tom Wright and Jimmy Dunn and E.P. Sanders are slightly skewed or greatly skewed because they are constantly ducking that sin question. Thus, for E.P. Sanders, Paul really moves from solution to plight, as we saw in the last hour. When you read Romans, it doesn't look like solution to plight. It may be that that's how Paul got there in his experience, but in the thrust of his argumentation, it's from plight to solution. He examines what's wrong with the human race, whether you're in the covenant or outside the covenant, whether you're under the law or not under the law, and he sees that the solution is Christ's death in Romans three. Do you see? His analysis, whatever means he got there himself psychologically, his analysis finally, as he looks at the whole thing and gives an exposition of it, is from plight to solution. I remember explaining to David Gooding once Tom Wright's views. Now David Gooding is a venerable old brethren preacher. Spends a lot of time these days in in Eastern Europe. For many years he taught uh, Septuagintal studies in Queen's University Belfast. Uh, A brilliant man of the old school, retirement age plus now. When he was a young man doing doctoral studies, he still didn't know German. So when he wanted to write to a German scholar to get some more material on the LXX, he wrote in Latin. He was one of those, Um, a good and godly man. But he obviously, having having retired and so on, wasn't keeping up on all of this stuff. And he he called me in one day and he, he said, Don, explain to me what Tom Wright means by justification. So I rabbited on and tried to explain what he meant by justification and finally came down with God's declarative act by which someone is declared to be in the covenant. He instantly replied, doesn't the man know any Greek? Now, it's important to understand what he was asking. David Gooding is no fool. He understands that words can move a long way from their etymologies. Uh, When we take our English word butterfly, it's got very little to do with butter and flying. Except by the most uh, extraordinary extension. Nevertheless, um, his point was very important. Because whether you debate uh, uh, dikayasune and dikayos and dikayao, these various words, along traditional axes or not, they all have to do somewhere somehow with justness you see even in the old Catholic evangelical debates they still have to do with something to do with being just are you just because God infuses justice into you or are you just because God declares you just on the ground of a a sacrifice paid by another that's the old Catholic evangelical debate in a nutshell somewhat simplified But now to say that justification is that forensic act by which you are declared to be in the covenant, I can't hear any overtones anywhere of justice issues. It's who's in, who's out. In the categories of systematic theology, what that does is raise ecclesiology, who's in, who's out, over against soteriology. Now that was what our two-hour breakfast was about. And when I push Tom along those lines, he says, well, when I work on this a little farther, I will be incorporating that bigger storyline. I told him he better hurry up because otherwise he's gonna lose a lot of friends. It's very important to see what that bigger issue is. Justification, it seems to me, cannot escape notions of justice. They cannot escape notions of righteousness. That's still the dick word. It is dikayos, dikayosune, dikayo, and so forth. And all of these have to do with justice, justice, righteousness. And that ties to the whole storyline of sin and depravity and the fall, which antedates, reading the old Bible salvation historically, it antedates any question of the locus of the covenant community. And if you don't see that, you will skew all your subsequent biblical theology. A friend of mine from Australia, a young scholar, he was doing his PhD at Cambridge at the time, Peter Bolt, he now teaches at Moore College. He went to a conference in Britain three or four years ago. I wasn't there. Where Tom was giving his understanding of Pauline thought. And some of this material is published in Tyndale Bulletin. And some of it is not yet available. But after this this, uh, lecture and question and answer uh, period. uh, Peter went up to Tom. Now this is Peter telling me this. So I've only got Peter's report of it. Peter went up to Tom and said, uh, um, Tom, help me here. You're called in the middle of the night to the bedside of an old woman who's got five minutes to live. And she says, Pastor Wright, I'm going to die. What must I do to be saved? What will you tell her? Isn't that a good question? Academics have got to get down on the street now and then. And Tom said, "Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> you just lost one minute." Well, Peter said, "Well, let me help you." He said, "Would you say um, you've got to belong to the covenant?" Well, um, well no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to uh, put it put it like that. Well, would you say um, God's got to declare you to be in the covenant? Do you see the issue now? You see, someone with Tom's sophistication (laughs) certainly can incorporate his views into a broader stream that still really does understand that Christ died for sinners. Tom does. You can get him in a corner and he'll come out that way. But somehow the priorities have got twisted around here. let me take a few more minutes just to direct your attention to a handful of passages um, to to, to help us uh, think through some of these issues at an exegetical level. Let's begin with Galatians 2, 11 to 14. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, this passage is, in fact, surprisingly complex. When you try to play out what was happening here, it is, it is far more complex than you might think on first reading. What is it that makes Peter go across? Is he the sort of wimpy person at this stage who's eating with Gentiles, not observing kosher restrictions, and then a few Jews come from Jerusalem And because he's afraid of them, that's what the text says, because he's afraid of them, he wimps out. Maybe he's afraid of what they're going to say back home. By this time, Peter has already got through the Cornelius episode in Acts 10 and 11 on any dating of Galatians. What's going on here? Now you see, that interpretation of the passage, which is pretty common amongst us, presupposes that in verse 12, certain men from James are the same as the circumcision group at the end of verse 12. hoi Those of the circumcision. But there's no particular reason for thinking that they're the same group. There may be something far more complex here. In Paul's terminology hoi ekperitames those of the circumcision never ever as far as i can see refers to christians but those from james are clearly christians they're meeting with a church you've got two groups here so those from james are one group and because they've come paul is afraid of this other group now suddenly you've got a more complicated paragraph what does it look like well i'm not sure But one of the best analyses that I've read of this, it's found in a variety of places, it's it's well set out, for example, in F.F. Bruce's Greek Commentary of Galatians in the NIGTC series. Depending on the dating of Galatians, you're not earlier than the end of the 40s. And at this point, persecution is beginning to break out in repeated fashions back in Jerusalem those from James may well be up here meeting with the Antioch Christians and have brought some sort of report from James. In other words, it doesn't just say those from Jerusalem. It says those from James, which gives an overtone of maybe being sent by James or at least his emissaries in some sense. And if they come with some kind of report like this, one can understand Peter's action. The report may be, my dear Peter, we all agree on what the gospel is. But you must understand that down here in Jerusalem, we're getting clobbered by kosher Jews committed to the temple who think that we've apostatized. And when they hear stories of you, with all your public profile, up there eating with Gentiles, Do you realize what damage that is doing to us down here? For goodness sake, be careful! That's all it would take. Now you see, there's nothing of the gospel compromised in any of this. Or it could have been merely a whisper of hint. And so in this case, you see, Peter wimps out. Not because he's a wimp, but because he realizes that back home there are entailments in his decisions over here. He's afraid of the circumcision group. He's not afraid personally. He's up in Antioch. He's already been blooded. He's already faced persecution. He's already declared that he's, he's happy to suffer for Jesus' sake. He's not wimping out in that sense. He's afraid of hoi ek because he's at least trying to protect the people back home from facing too much of a blast because of his incautious attitudes or conduct. But Paul sees that there are wheels within wheels on this one there is a theological matter at issue. The trouble is that what might secure a little more safety for some Christian Jews back home is certainly going to be read in Antioch in another way. In Antioch, it's going to be read as if there are two tiers of Christians after all. The ordinary ones and the super-spiritual ones who observe kosher food laws, which will have the long-term deleterious effect of relativizing the exclusive sufficiency of Christ and His crosswork. So Paul says, listen, Peter, you're a Jew and you live like a Gentile. You can't go back and change that. It's the way it is. It's bound up with the gospel itself. You see it because you're a Christian. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Now, if you go back then, are you not forcing Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You've gone one way, by going back at this stage, you're you're exercising a kind of moral suasion that the inside track with God depends on certain observance after all. You're going back and bringing them with you. How is that going to advance the gospel? And implicitly, if that means that people get persecuted in Jerusalem, that's the way it is. Now, frankly, I find that convincing. I find it convincing um, as a way of understanding why Peter should uh, sh- should succumb as he does. I find it exegetically convincing because "hoy ek peti to mason Paul" simply does not mean Christians. That's why I gave you my grid at the beginning. Do you see? There are people along this line at different places. And, and you cannot merge two or three of these places altogether. At a certain superficial level, the actual conduct might be indif- indifferentiable between two people. You might have two people both going up to the temple, both observing Yom Kippur. But one of them is a committed Christian who really does see the exclusive sufficiency of Christ, but is observing because in Jerusalem it's safe to do that. I mean, after all, Paul himself is prepared to go up to the temple and offer sacrifices and vows, isn't he? So long as it's not... Jeopardizing the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. But somebody else goes up to to do it and and there they really are claiming the exclusive necessity of, of continuing under the terms of the old covenant. That does relativize Christ. In any thought through sense, one is a Christian and the other is not. You must see that or you can't make sense of Galatians 1, 8 and 9. You see, one person does not stand under Paul's anathema. The other person does. The one is preaching another gospel. The other is merely being culturally flexible. And that, you see, is why Paul himself can get into trouble. On the one hand, you read in Galatians chapter 2 that when he takes Titus up to Jerusalem, Titus is not circumcised. He stands his ground. Paul stands his ground. Nobody forces Titus to be circumcised. The Jerusalem apostles are on board. In other words, there's one gospel from the beginning. A little thought through, a little more thought through by Paul, a little faster perhaps by Paul, but at the end of the day, nobody demanded that Titus be circumcised. On the other hand, you read the book of Acts and picks up Timothy and gets him circumcised. Paul, you really are two-faced, aren't you? Double standard. You can understand why Paul was charged with that, can't you? But here was a man who thought things through at the level of principle rather than at the level of mere rules. At the level of principle, you see, when the issue is whether or not circumcision would jeopardize the exclusive sufficiency of Christ, there was no way Paul was going to allow Titus to be circumcised. But when the issue is not that, it's merely a question of the possibility of getting into Jewish synagogues in order to evangelize, Paul says, uh, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Gentile I became a Gentile. Go ahead, circumcise him. Am I allowed to tell you another story? This one is relevant, but it's embarrassing. It's terribly embarrassing. You're not allowed to tell this one to anybody. Preachers, when they get together, every once in a while they, they will swap stories of times when they've stuck their foot in their mouth. You know, when they've said something they didn't mean to say. You prepare immaculately and then you you know you you drivel at the mouth and say something that afterwards you, you're just mortified about. If you've been in the ministry for a few years, it happens to you. I'm sure that you could all share your own embarrassing moments. Here's one of mine. I was explaining this matter about ten years ago at a Bible camp in Michigan. And I was trying to act out Paul's reasoning in these two cases, you see? So I carefully explained how in the the, the case of Titus, uh, for the sake of preserving the integrity of the gospel and the exclusive sufficiency of Christ, no way you're gonna circumcise Titus. No way, absolutely no way. In the case of Timothy, then I explain what went on there. Go ahead, circumcise him, no skin off my nose. Well, I'm afraid I lost that group. I, <laughs> I lost that group. I battled on royally and gradually got them back to uh, some semblance of order. You know. The camp director and his wife were sitting over there and, um, and uh, they came tearing up to me afterwards, still cackling, you know. said, come on, tell us, tell us, we got a bet. Did you mean to say that or not? <laughs> I come from a school where I don't allow a lot of humor in my preaching, and that was just a bit too over the top for me, I'm afraid, but that was one of my more embarrassing moments. <laughs> now, it, within this kind of framework, then, you can see why Paul is, is, uh, is, 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 is flexible. He's not inconsistent. He, he, he's flexible when he sees that the issue is the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There he will not allow compromise. But that means that you have to read all of Galatians in a more comprehensive way than merely who's in, who's out, merely kosher food laws, merely questions of circumcision. There's a much deeper issue and agenda. These are the presenting issues, but the undergirding issues, you see, come back to the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. Do you see? And you don't get that kind of analysis, for example, in Dunn's uh, commentary on, on, um, on, on Galatians. It skirts right around that issue here. Let me deal with one more passage. Oh, there are so many more that we could usefully look at, but 1 Corinthians uh, 9. You, you see, if I could give you an analogy, it's, it's, not, um, it's, it's not a very good one. Because it's not tied to the law of Moses, but in some circles, for example, it is is considered in this country, in some circles, to be a sin to drink any alcohol. Now, in this country, I'm a teetotaler. For a start, it gives me cheaper insurance rates. I don't like the stuff much anyway. In Europe and other parts of the world, I don't promise anything. But even in this country, if somebody comes up to me and says, you can't be a Christian if you drink, I will say, pass the port. (laughs) For the simple reason that I will not allow anyone or anything to determine who's a Christian and who's not a Christian, except by virtue of the exclusive sufficiency of Christ Jesus. Besides, I like port. <laughs> now Galatians First Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse uh, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. though I am not free from God's law, but, uh, but I'm under Christ's law, so as not to win those uh, so, sorry, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now this is an extraordinary passage. I wish I had time to expound it at length. Let me draw your attention to just two or three elements in it. Number one, it is part of a sustained argument that runs from 8-1 all the way through to 11:1. And in this argument, Paul is dealing with the weak and the strong, or more fully, the person with the weak conscience and the strong conscience. And it too has been generated by this question of food. But in this case, food offered to idols. That is what occupies chapter 8. In this case, the person with the weak conscience is the person who thinks that something is wrong even when objectively it is not. The person with the strong conscience is the person who is free to do certain kinds of things that are not in fact morally wrong because their conscience is robust enough not to operate by rules that go beyond what the new covenant stipulates. That's really the difference between the strong and the weak. Occasionally, less so today, occasionally, uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, you would find somebody who would come up to you and say, you know, I don't think you should go to movies. I will be offended if you do. And therefore you can't do it because you can't offend anyone. Now I confess, I was sufficiently perverse 25 years ago. I'm I'm a, a little more mellow. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm a little more mellow today. I was sufficiently perverse 25 years ago to respond, I'm sorry to hear that you're one of the weaker brothers. Because it's very important to see that the argument here is not the manipulation of people by rules. It concerns rather people who really feel that something is wrong, but mistakenly so. They're the weak brothers, the weak sisters. And because Paul does not want people to act against their conscience, even if their conscience is misguided, because he doesn't want conscience to be abused and trimmed, therefore, He does not want Christians who are strong to act in such a way that they induce by their example these Christians who are weak to do things against their conscience. So that's why Paul speaks of self-restraint in these matters. In that kind of connection then, while the world stands, I will not eat meat if it's going to jeopardize the faith of a weaker brother and sister in Christ. Of course, on the long haul, what he wants them to do is to have their consciences constrained by Scripture instead of merely by rules that don't really pertain. Now within that framework then, by the time he gets to chapter nine, he starts talking about the way he has in principle denied himself, constrained himself, refused to exercise all of his liberties, even as an apostle. So he hasn't got married and he doesn't take money from the people to whom he's uh, ministering. He might take it from another group on a kind of missionary basis, but not from the people to whom he's ministering and so forth. And within this framework, more broadly, he then comes to this paragraph. All of this paragraph, in other words, is part of his exemplification of willing apostolic self-denial. Here's a man who does not ask the question, what are my rights? But rather, how may I deny myself for the sake of Christ? Second, within this framework then, it is pretty clear that Paul does not, in this context, see himself primarily as a Christian Jew who has to flex to witness to Gentiles. Now, in certain contexts, he does see himself as a Christian Jew. Thus, for example, in in Romans 9, he he speaks of his, his, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He could wish himself accursed for them. He does see himself aligned with his own race. But in this context, he does not see himself as a Christian Jew who has to flex to reach Gentiles. He sees himself in the tertium quid, the third position, a Christian. And he has to flex to reach Jews, and he has to flex to reach Gentiles. So on the one hand, he says, I'm not under law. And on the other hand, he says, I am, well, I'm not animos either. I'm so what are you, Paul? Just, just, just where do you stand in all of this? To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And of course we have an example of that in Acts when he goes up to the temple and pays for the the, the sacrifices of the young men, has his hair shorn and so forth. To those under the law I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, which surely means under the law covenant. He does not see himself as thus bound. To those not having the law, that is to the Gentiles, I acted like them. I became like... One not having the law, though he says there are some limitations there, too. That does not give him the right to do anything he wants without exception. He is still constrained. I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. Enemos Christu, the only place in the New Testament where that expression is found. But enemos is found in Second Temple Jewish literature. And the genitive that follows is always that which constrains Always. So what we have here then is a flexibility in what is meant by God's law. Otherwise, the passage simply makes no sense at all. He has already said that he's not under the law, which has to be the law covenant, Torah, the Mosaic covenant. But he is under, he's not free from God's law, which can't be the Mosaic covenant or it makes no sense. Rather the constraint of God upon him thus is all that is meant by being an Amos Christu under Christ's law. Now by itself that does not raise all the questions then of how there are links between Torah and Christ's law. There are all kinds of links, important links. It doesn't raise that question. But he sees himself in this framework as being bound by all that is meant by being amos Christu, and from that position, then he works out certain flexibility. Within that framework, then he says, in the third place, that the purpose of this was evangelism. You see, so many of our debates on these matters have, have circled around other kinds of issues. Freedoms, total structures, the bearing of systematic theology, all of which are important issues. But Paul's driving motivation in this area is evangelism. Amen. Amen. So that when we think through issues of flexibility and what binds us and what doesn't and so on, must we not, in our churches, in our thinking, at least ask how individually, even corporately, we become like those without the law, without for a moment ever forgetting that we're also in a mosque too. Do you see? Otherwise, through the back door, we may return to such a rule-based Christianity that we're so far removed from Paul's vision of what drives him that while officially approving all he says, we act in a very different way. Now, I would love to say more about these matters and the relationship between Paul and law, but if I do not end there and leave time for questions, um, someone will have my skin. So uh, I think I'd better call it quits. I warned you that this was not going to be a sermon. It was a lecture, two of them now. You've been very patient, but now it's your turn to come back, and at the end, we'll have time for some prayer together um, uh, on these important issues. So if you want to take the microphone and... um, um, Have your um, discourse. All right, whatever you say. I never argue with John.
0: The question and answer period, which followed this presentation by Dr. Carson, was too long to be included on this tape. It may be found on Side B of Dr. Carson's first presentation on new perspective theology. Tape JB98A3